Baptism of Jesus Sunday. Well, I'm going to start with this unforgettable line that Joel Marcus wrote in his Anchored Bible Commentary about Mark. He said, God has ripped the heavens irrevocably apart at Jesus' baptism, never to shut them again. Through this gracious gash in the universe, he has poured forth his spirit into the earthly realm. What a picture, huh? He's commenting dramatically on Mark 1, 4 to 11. That was our gospel lection today, the baptism of our Lord. And it's kind of an intriguing text, don't you think? The heavens aren't merely opened, but ripped apart. It's a very vivid ver verb, schizomenius. Feels harsh, even dramatic. What is opened can be closed, but what is torn apart cannot easily return to its former state. Notice, too, the echoes of Genesis 1, our Old Testament text, which I'm not really preaching on Genesis today, but it looms large in the background. The, the Spirit, the wind of God, hovers, making creation happen night and day. Words are spoken. Life comes to be. And our other reading, Acts 19, 1-7, speaks of the arrival of Paul in Ephesus only to discover to his chagrin that the Christians there had never heard of the Holy Spirit. That wasn't really their fault. Christian theology was just barely unfolding. It was the time of beginnings, of startings again. There was no doctrine of the Trinity that had ever been concocted yet. And frankly, the Holy Spirit, or so it seems, prefers not to be in the limelight. Now, yes, there are Christians who put the Spirit front and center, although we have to be careful with that, that it is not merely an emotional experience or some sort of counterfeit hysteria, but rather an authentic, divine, and deep reality. Now that goes directly to the discernment that I spoke about last week. The Holy Spirit is kind of the shy member of the Trinity, lurking in the background, preferring that the attention be fixed on Jesus. The descent of the Spirit at Jesus' baptism? A great commentator of a prior generation named Hugh Anderson once wrote that the days of spirit famine are ended. I wonder, have we been now in such a famine season? I pray it is over again. The Greek here is interesting again. For Mark, the spirit descends into, eis, E-I-S, for those who want to know the transliteration of the Greek, E-I-S, Jesus. In other words, something entered Jesus. It is not that a bird perched on his head. John preached, well, preached, actually, he kind of shouted, and, well, as some of my friends back in Louisiana, hi guys, would say, he hollered in the wilderness. By the way, John is believed to have started his peculiar ministry in a cave, a cave near his birthplace. The cave is called Ein Kerem. It's been excavated. By Jesus' time, though, he's made it to the River Jordan. And I wonder, was he, was he preaching and baptizing where we take pilgrims on tour today when we go to the Holy Land? Where the Jordan is narrow, it's weightable, 
for the Jordan is less than a stone's throw across a creek. And the wilderness where he preached, that's real, but it's symbolic too, isn't it? That's the place where God meets, leads, and teaches the people. The notion that the people were traveling out to the desert to engage with God evokes the Exodus, or Jesus or Joseph and his brothers forging out into the wilderness to discover God's way, God's plan. We see those things in many, many spiritual disciplines. Native Americans have a spirit journey, a quest. The wilderness also evokes being at risk perhaps even lost. Lost, but still searching and seeking for God, looking for home. Now, just a word. If we were to meet John on the street today, John the Baptist, he might be kind of frightening. He could frighten children or even sophisticated adults. He had sort of a bizarre survivalist mode of living. I mean, really? Camel's hair and locusts? Right? While he singularly was on fire for God. And that kind of upsets normalcy. It's not, it's not good manners, right? There's a theologian named William Platcher who said, He clears the way for a clean and uncluttered look at the one who is to come. In other words, he wants us to clean up and get ready for Jesus. John's task was to prepare the way. Now, John's baptism is actually kind of peculiar for our understanding. It's not Christian baptism. Remember, he was preparing the way. He was before Christ. And it's not the Jewish immersions either. The Jews were accustomed by then to the habit of dipping into a mikvah to purify themselves. We recognize that many of Jesus' healings throughout the Gospels took place at one mega mikvah or another the pool of Siloam, or the pool of Bethesda, huge public mikvahs where people purified themselves before entering the temple precincts at Passover. Jesus capitalized on their presence and their hunger for God in such places by teaching and healing there. John's baptism is something beyond this. He was wrenching up, enriching, and amplifying these ritual washings to something much more real, much more meaningful and intense than a routine ritual. This was ultimate. This was decisive. A true call to repent, to turn. It was all about repentance, which has kind of fallen out of style in our day. When Donald Trump was running for president, he famously gaffed that he'd never ask God for forgiveness as he'd done his best and didn't feel the need. Pious progressives hooted, but sadly, Trump seemed to speak for a majority of American so-called Christians, but who were really religious nationalists, who look to God and expect God's blessing, but don't feel much need for forgiveness. People who do not come to true righteousness. However society conceives of things, sin is a huge problem still. You know, it's like dirt and dust. It keeps coming back. Hence the need for washing, reminding us of Lady Macbeth's out damned spot. She cannot shake the palpable residue of grimy sin, nor can we. Partly, it's our social societal mentality of deserving 
Partly, it's also not understanding forgiveness and repentance. To repent isn't to grovel in guilt. The Hebrew word for it, shub, is to make a 180 degree turn. And the Greek, metanoia, is a change of mind. And forgiveness isn't getting off the hook or feeling warm fuzzies for the one we might forgive. The Greek, aphesis, ephemi, simply means release, to let it go. Instead of clinging to wrongs done so close that the toxicity is mine or ours to bear, not the other, thus poisoning ourselves, we simply open our hands and let the past, the guilt, the wrong done go. God does this for and with us. I love it that at the Jordan, the heavenly voice speaks to Jesus. Do the, do the others overhear? I wonder, you are my beloved. The voice says, Beloved, this you is even more impactful to us. Can we feel that you? Can you feel it? Yes, you out there hearing this sermon. Do you know that you are God's beloved? You are. We are all one in him as the beloved when we choose to be. Jesus is the expression of God's love. I love that. God is inclusive, not exclusive. And finally, we hear and feel the urgency in Mark's frequently used adverb, immediately, euthus. Jesus is a man in a hurry. It's urgent. You must respond, and now, immediately, before another second. And here, in this need for response, here is where I address the question of my heart and spirit today. I am saddened, I'm disappointed, I'm horrified by the events in our capital this past week. I cannot ignore it, I cannot be silent, I cannot chalk it up to good intentions to save democracy because it is none of that. And there's nothing righteous about any of the things that happened. Amen. It was not peaceful. And it had nothing, nothing at all to do with following God. I warn you, I am bringing serious thoughts to bear today. We have been warned and taught over and over. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorns or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree bears fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will know them by their fruits. 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many deeds of power in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you evildoers. All of that was from Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 23. We have had false prophets here and powerful enablers, and media minions fearing, feeding us lies and fear and resentment. We have had and still have a false prophet in the land who posed for a photo app holding a Bible upside down wrapped in a phony flag as he blasts those hurting and suffering out of his path. We have a false prophet in the land declaring himself a keeper of the faith, a protector of the faithful, whose craven ministers lap at his feet. I am so tired and saddened that these professed ministers spend their time currying favor and betraying their flocks. Amen. Woe to them! Too, too many have believed their lies. Why? Out of fear, out of greed, out of hate, out of desperation. I am weary. We are a weary people. We were warned and warned and warned, and now this false prophet, a president who believed himself a monarch, a ravenous wolf who, when threatened by his loss, told his pack to attack, and they did. And so many did. So many eagerly made themselves prey to the call. Those who break down doors and windows and parade with Nazi symbols believe themselves to be the righteous ones. Those who wave the Confederate flag believe they are saving our country. Those who hang a political flag in place of an American one believe themselves to be keepers of traditions and the hopes for our nation's future. Those whose faces twist with hate, who burn with violence, believe themselves to be followers of the Prince of Peace. They do not yet know that Jesus' warning, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, applies to them. Amen. All of this is evidence of a terrible failing of the church. And it is our great challenge ahead. Discernment. Discernment is not a small, minor challenge. It's not some little objective in our life. It is not a small gift. It is one of the gifts of the Spirit. It is vital. Knowing good from bad, right from wrong, truth from lies, figs from thistles, these are the essential lessons of a life lived in the way of Jesus. We must ask ourselves at every juncture to make a judgment upon which we shall be judged. Is this the way or have I strayed? If you are not vigilant, if you are not awake, if you follow wolves, you will be led to spiritual slaughter. We are living in an age of disinformation in which the powerful, 
or the clever are able to manipulate the population to make them believe just about anything. How well have we prepared one another for the world? Are we wise as serpents? How well have we risen to this occasion to proclaim a gospel that pierces through these bubbles of insanity? These bubbles of insanity that plant such terrible trees that lead to such poisonous fruit. I'm sorry, but it must be addressed. Too many self-proclaiming Christians lift up a cross and say, Lord, Lord, with their mouths, even as their theology is based on white nationalism and their heart is hardened by hate towards immigrants, anti-Semitism, and Islamophobia. Too many of these so-called Christians cry law, order, as they attack peaceful movements for black lives while letting white militias threaten openly and praise good people on both sides. What happened in the Capitol was only the latest offense in a series of terrifying and terrorizing acts that have been given sanctuary and sanction by too many in the church. It must stop now. In God's name, it must stop. Now the wolf in sheep's clothing has been unmasked. The emperor has been laid bare, crude and plain for all to see. But that is only half the work. There's something even more important. We must find ways to reach out and bring Americans led astray out of a life of falseness and hurt and hate into the way of truth, of love. A missional invitation of repentance, reparation, and reconciliation. Let us let the radical liberation ethic of Jesus show us all a better way and build together a future based on mutual care, on liberty and justice. Make no mistake, it will take all our spiritual power. It will take all of our media savvy and technology skills and our shared civic commitment. We must reach out to our enemies, talk to them, listen to them, love them until they come back and become once again our neighbors. All part of the beloved community of God. Those who think it will be hard, you're right, it will. But remember the lesson of repentance and forgiveness. Turn, release the toxicity. I begin to close this with a statement that Walter Casper, theological advisor to Pope Francis wrote. He said, the gospel story of the baptism of Jesus summarizes the whole mystery of Christmas. It is the foundation of everything, the prelude in which all the themes of the gospel are already discernible. In himself, Jesus Christ sums up all the mysteries of faith. And so, dear ones, it is time to repent. 
to renew. It is time to remember our vows. To be baptized with water, yes, but also to be baptized with the Spirit of God. May it be so. Amen. Amen.